0: Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
1: This is Indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg, And we are joined today by State Representative Natalie Blay. Representative, I would really appreciate it if you would share with our listeners the district that you represent, and then we want to hear about what the storm has done, what the damage has been, and what the response will be from the state. So tell us about this Uh, momentous and really, really damaging and significant event. Please.
2: Yeah, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk this morning about this. So uh, State Representative Natalie Blair represent the 1st Franklin District, which includes 17 communities in western Franklin County and half of the city of Greenfield. Um, And, you know, since the storm happened, uh, the, the legislative delegation across the region, across the western four counties, have all been out in their communities surveying the damage um, to community roads, uh, which we've seen washed out, uh, culverts, uh, culvert damage, um, basements that have been flooded, and, and certainly you know, our farms that, that are really struggling and, and continue to be underwater as we wait to see over the next couple of days what, what these rain events will bring for them. Representative Blay, would
1: you be kind enough to tell us what you know about the damage to the farms? I know there are many farms in your district and there are many farms in the region as well. And from what I can see, this is really serious economically for them. And it's really serious, I think, in terms of food production for the state. So tell us more about that, if you would, please.
2: It, It truly, it truly is. You know, we... We were talking to Jay Savage out at Savage Farms in, in Deerfield. Um, the, his farm is a 113-year-old a potato and sod farm. And his, his damage estimates, very preliminary. Him alone, they were looking at $1 million. And when I say preliminary, it's because he could not get to all of the 600 acres that he farms throughout the region, not only in Deerfield. But also in Gill and Irving and other locations. So his very preliminary estimates were $1 million in crop losses. This morning I heard from Galinsky Farms at a South Deerfield. Uh, he was out working in his tractor. He is also estimating $1 million in damages. Uh, we were out at Natural Roots Farm in Conway. You know, they were decimated. You know, the river just took everything, including chickens, unfortunately. Uh, with it as, as the river very quickly rose. You know, I was speaking with, with them there, and, and they said they went across the field to check on how things were looking. They came back over the bridge. You know, it was, an hour, it was an, an hour where the river rose that quickly and, and took out all of their crops. They have started a GoFundMe page. You know, they're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars of losses there. And, and to your point, Bill, you know, it's not like they can just keep this food and, you know, the potatoes and the vegetables and everything and and use it. Um, We are very concerned about public health safety in terms of, you know, what food is put out there. And I want to commend the Massachusetts Department of Agriculture. They have been on the ground talking with farmers about food safety, what can be used, what can't be used. And, uh, and, and the Healy-Driscoll administration, uh, they have been here. They have been on the ground. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Driscoll was here yesterday at Natural Roots. The governor was out in the region in Williamsburg and, and North Adams the day before. So there's definitely an awareness about the impact that this has had on our communities and our farms.
3: Representative Blay, before uh, I want to hear more about what the state's going to do, but I should tell listeners um, that on the WHMP Webpage. page. Just put WHMP into your browser. What will come up is Western Mass Farms Need Our Help. There's direct links to a number of farms and their GoFundMe pages, including uh, the Natural Roots Farm in Conway you were just discussing. So uh, please do, folks, uh, take a look and, and see some of the farms um, are there with their GoFundMe pages. There are many more that need our help and the state's help. Just wanted to throw that in right now.
1: Representative representative Bley, when you talk about these very large numbers of losses, is that the loss for what the uh, produce w- would have uh, would have uh, uh, gained, would have sold for at market? Is that what we're talking about in terms of these large numbers? We're not talking about physical property damage. We're talking about loss through loss of sale of crops?
2: It's all of it, right? So it's the money that they've put into the seed. Uh, it's what their what their losses, their, their anticipated losses for sale of those products are, and there's real physical damage. The river just ripped up parts of the farmland that can cannot possibly be farmed now. So the damage is all of those things, and it's it's truly horrific.
1: Is the uh, is the state agricultural? Uh, Uh, Part of the economy in trouble now, in addition to these individual farms, uh, is the entire agricultural economy, because there's a lot of uh, connections, of course, between the farmers and uh, stores and restaurants and so on. Can you tell us more about that?
2: So I think that this just happened on, you know, a couple of days ago, and we're waiting to see what's going to happen over the next couple of days uh, but there is a real concern, not only for what we've already seen, but what is to come. You know, as we were talking with the Smorowskis and, and Yaz Farm and, and, Jay, and Jay Savage, we were talking about squash farmers and the potential for you know mold going forward for them. So yes, I think that there is a real. There's an economic impact here, and there is certainly an impact for local food production that we all rely on. The farmers in our region provide fresh, local, healthy food for not only us here in Western Massachusetts, but all of the Commonwealth. And so they do so much for our communities, and to see this happen to them is is really – it is heartbreaking. Um, So I do hope, to the extent that folks can – step up and help uh, that they will do so individually. Uh, Yesterday we we took up the supplemental bill in the House. Uh, I did offer an Ag Disaster Relief Fund amendment that I was hoping to get through for $20 million to provide direct assistance to farmers. Uh, Right now, you know, if the only assistance to farmers are low interest loans in the event of a disaster. Crop insurance doesn't cover it. So the only thing available to them Are low interest loans and when farmers are making 96 cents on the dollar low interest loans don't cut it it puts them further in the hole so to the extent that the state is able to explore direct assistance and also climate adaptation measures to assist farmers the better off we're all going to be my amendment did not move forward yesterday because we still don't have those definitive numbers Uh, But the Senate will be taking up the the supplemental, too, and we're hoping to to really firm up those numbers and try to push this forward for our farmers.
1: So are you optimistic there will, in fact, be emergency relief for the farmers? I understand what you just said about the, the firm numbers are not in hand yet, but are you optimistic the state is, in fact, going to address this issue and provide relief for our local farmers?
2: We're going to do everything that we can. And as I've told our farmers before, I'm going to fight like hell for them to do what I can to to help them out.
1: Before we go, Representative Blake, would you be kind enough to go back to the issue you raised about public health and safety? Uh, What has caused the public health and safety dilemma and how that is going to be resolved?
2: Yeah, so as I mentioned, Massachusetts Department of Agriculture staff has been on the ground talking with farmers about whether or not they can you know, use products, you know, vegetables that have been sitting in water. Uh, some crops, it's my understanding, I am not an expert on this. <laughs> some crops you know, can take a little bit of water and be able to still go forward and be used. Uh, other crops cannot. So we want to make sure, uh, and the farmers are really conscientious about this uh, in terms of making sure that any crops that they are using are safe for public consumption uh, having been you know having sit having been sitting in water sometimes uh, for several days it's just you know, like savage farms looking at their potato fields he was estimating a hundred at least a hundred acres of potatoes lost uh, because they were just sitting in water they're gone they're done
1: and Representative Blay, I know you have to go. You're at a meeting in, in waitley with constituents, and you've had this plan for a long, long time. We really appreciate you taking the time with us this morning. Is there any final word that you want to leave your constituents and our listeners with, with regard to this flooding and this natural disaster?
2: Well, of course, support our local farms. And please go to the link that, that Buzz has provided. Um, I think the fact of the matter is, and we feel it very intensely here in this region, that we saw Tropical Storm Irene. I stood with Jay Savage in his fields in 2011, and they were underwater. A decade later, I stood with Jay Savage again in his fields that were underwater. This, these, these intense, frequent storms are going to continue to happen, and we as a Commonwealth really have to think about the policies and programs that we can put in place Uh, to ensure that we're putting the preventative measures, you know, the the climate mitigation pieces uh, in place, as well as assistance when these disasters occur.
1: Representative Natalie Blaine, thanks so very much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time and your representation and your
2: leadership. Thank you both. Take care.
4: That is two feet high and rising, but well, we can make it to the road in a homemade boat, because that's the only thing we got left that'll float. It's already over all of wheat and oats, two feet high and rising.
3: How high's the water, mama?
0: More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, coming up right here on WHMP.
1: San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s. A new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight. Leading the charge, the Kingston Trio.
5: Hang down your hip
3: tongue, do lee, hang down your head and cry.
1: The Kingston Trio, a night at Northampton's Academy of Music, Wednesday, July 19th.
6: Well, let me tell you of the story of a man named Charlie on a tragic and fateful day.
1: Today's Kingston Trio, playing the timeless songs. Get tickets now at the Academy of Music website or box office. More than 50 years after Tom Dooley shot to the top of the charts and the Kingston Trio's spirited folk music captured the hearts of the nation, the Trio lives on bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton.
5: Where have all the flowers gone?
7: What's new at the Waitley Inn? everything the waitley inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area the only thing that hasn't changed is the menu offering classic new england fare the waitley inn has become famous for the waitley inn is open wednesday through saturday starting at 4 p.m and sunday from 1 to 7. pickup is also available with easy online ordering visit waitleyinn.com. eat greatly at the waitley What do
1: you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. Like Happy Place by Emily Henry. Romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read lessons in chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice and you won't be able to put it down except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. And this is our segment with Max Page, Your State U. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and we want you to know about what the MTA has found out about what we in the Commonwealth think. New polling, we're going to share that with you in just a minute. First, Buzz. Buzz, I just wanted to uh,
3: point out, just complete this conversation we were having with Representative Natalie Blay a moment ago, which is I woke up this morning, I had about a 45-foot-tall tree the root ball is above the ground. The tree is lying on the ground. The land, even at 1,500 feet of elevation, can no longer, its soil is so saturated, it can't hold trees. And uh, it is so important. The devastation that's happening to our local farms is critical. On WHMP's website, just put in WHMP on your browser. It'll take you to Western Mass Farms Need Our Help, and there are some Hot links right to some farms that have GoFundMe pages right now and need our help in Deerfield, in Conway, in East Hampton, and other farms we're not necessarily listing here. So please help our local farmers. What happens is a drought just damages one year's worth of crops. Something like these deluge rains, they just wash away the soil and uh, do tremendous damage, not just to those farms and farmers, but also to this whole region and the food it supplies to us. So please, let's have, take care of our neighboring farms.
1: We turn now to Max Page. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, and we do not in any way want to distract from you who are going to the website to make contributions now, but I would like to talk to Max Page because you have information, Max, and the MTA has information about polling that you've done, and I would appreciate it, you, the Massachusetts Teachers Association has done, uh, with regard to critical issues facing the Commonwealth now and this year and this week. So tell us what you found out, what you did, and what you, you, the Massachusetts Teachers Association, has found out.
4: Thanks, Bill and, and Buzz. Um, yes, so we conducted a poll because um, we are Considering among other groups, um, considering possibly pursuing a ballot initiative, and that is for the November 2024 ballot that we have a process as many people know um, by which citizens can gather signatures and put something on the ballot. But that process begins a year, almost a year and a half early. That is by this August, um, organizations, including ours would have to decide whether we are interested in taking something right to the ballot, questions of policy that we'd like to change. And so that's the decision we're making. So we did some polling on key issues that we are looking at, and we were very gratified to see the broad public support for many of MTA's priorities, and I'm glad to go through some of those. For instance… Yeah, please. Um, One of the things uh, we've talked often on the show, in fact, this show started as your state, you, because I was talking about higher education issues. Eighty one percent of people of this is a this is a poll of the representative general public.
1: It's not necessarily voter. It's not necessarily voters. It's the public.
4: It is the voting public, but not necessarily recent or expected voters. It is people who are registered to vote in Massachusetts yes okay and it is a representative sample by different demographics and 81 percent of the participants in the poll which was conducted in June um, said they would vote yes on a ballot measure ensuring that every person who lives in Massachusetts um, has access to an adequately funded debt free education at any public college or university in Massachusetts this is largely what we have in what's so-called the Cherish Act our kind of blueprint for public higher education. So very, very broad support that everyone should be able to go to college if they choose and not have to graduate with burdensome debt. So that's a core part of our effort.
1: Does the question or did the question that the polling posed differentiate between public colleges and private colleges? Oops, Max has managed to Mute himself. Ah, oh, there the, the you go. The <laughs> question was only about
4: public colleges, Bill. Um, okay, because we're the MTA only represents um, our members at uh, public colleges and universities. So this was about: Would you do? Does every resident deserve a right to a public college or university education at, that's adequately funded and uh, does not require them to graduate with debt?
1: So was it a one-question poll, or were there more?
4: no there were we, we we looked at a number of issues that we were interested in so the next one is a top issue for us is of course the issues around um the mcas and the high stakes test assessment system so 73 percent of the respondents in the poll said they would support eliminating the graduation requirement tied to the mcas and that instead relying on our state strong state standards and the evaluation of local um educators so there's a very strong response as well Um, similarly people also want to get rid of would rather replace the existing receivership program that is where for instance in holyoke where um that school district is no longer controlled by the school committee, but is controlled by a private receiver appointed by the department of elementary and secondary education strong support for doing having a much better system that involves stakeholders and resources to improve schools that are, that have um, been, you know, suffering and not doing as well as they could be doing, like Holyoke or Lawrence or Southbridge, the three districts currently under receivership.
1: So the polling that the Massachusetts Teachers Association did had three areas that we you were inquiring about. One was MCAS. One was debt-free higher education and the third was the receivership program is that right
4: and there's a fourth one which is uh the right to strike for educators um this is what does the public think about the, having the, the of our public school educators having the right to strike as you know a number of mta locals went on strike in a state where it is illegal for public sector workers to go on strike and by a two to one ratio this is the second poll Actually, it's a third poll, two by us and one by a different group that showed that there is broad two to one support for educators having the right to
1: strike. So, Max Page, as an educator yourself, as the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, what I'm about to say to you and ask you about is not going to come as any surprise. But there is widespread distrust of polling, particularly because of how polling has so mispredicted election outcomes. And I think some people listening would say, wait a second, these are uh, really profoundly uh, uh, important numbers, if they're right. And my question for you is who conducted the polls? How do we know these numbers are right?
4: Um, The poll was conducted by Echo Cove Research, which is a respected Massachusetts-based organization that actually has done very good polling and very accurate polling around the fair share amendment. And um, so it's, and and I think what's interesting is we also really uh, push people by providing them real counter arguments. And that says, you know, a, a good strong poll will not just ask a question once, but actually, you know, say, what do you think of the arguments here? are The arguments against, um, you know, debt-free public higher education. Here's the arguments against eliminating the MCAS. And so it allows us to really push to see where people stand. It also asks questions, for instance, um, whether or not how, you know, how people, how strongly people care about these things passing. So there's a lot of different elements to it and we absolutely stand by um, uh, this, this polling. And as I said, we did an earlier poll with Echo Code Research back in, I think, February or March. At the same time, totally unbeknownst to us, another polling firm in Massachusetts um, did a poll that asked the same question and came up with the same numbers on the right to strike, that that particular, particular one. So what we see is something that is not surprising but always gratifying to see, which is where the educators are on an issue Is usually where the public is, and I think those things are not just by chance. It is that educators remain the most trusted people on education issues. And so we at the MTA have been broadly talking about issues around MCAS and debt free public higher education and the public agrees.
3: I thought lawyers and talk show hosts were the most trusted people. On, mm. however, Max Page, President Max Page, you began by telling us that you might you're considering putting something on a plebiscite, a referendum, uh, on the ballot as a result of what you've learned from this poll. So could you tell us a little bit about what your plans are now?
4: Sure, we are we are considering two ballot initiatives. One on elimination of the graduation requirement of the MCAS. And another that would guarantee debt free public higher education for all residents. So we are exploring that our board sort of asked us to pursue that, meaning prepare plans and do this polling. And and that decision will have to be made in August, because that's when it's required to file with the attorney general, the exact question you would like to put on the ballot in November of 2024. If we do go forward with 1 or both then there's an intensive period in the fall between mid-September and the end of November where we have to gather um, roughly 100,000 signatures in order to put this on the ballot, put the question on the ballot of the people in November of 2024.
1: So the process is first the question as you would like it posed on the ballot is sent to the Attorney General for either approval or disapproval, but hopefully approval from your point of view, of course, and then It is required to gather a hundred thousand signatures to put it on the ballot and how long do you have to gather a hundred thousand signatures which seems like a big project
4: it is a big project it really is about eight weeks as i say if once the attorney general says yes this this is ready to go then she prepares her office prepares the papers the petition papers we get those sometime there's no specific date, but early mid September, and then we're off to the races. There is a final date. I think it's November 22nd. The number I made up 100,000. It's actually somewhere around 80,000. Valid signatures, but all groups that try to do this know that you have to have a good bit more in, in case there are errors. Um, if people sign the, you know, the, the, on the wrong sheet in the wrong town or put something wrong down, those can be disqualified. So you always have to have a lot more than um the minimum required
3: and if it passes at the ballot box how binding would the results be on the state
4: well it is effectively passing a law um and and in fact if we get the signatures when we get the signatures if we go forward um it actually gets presented to the legislature as a bill that they have to vote up or down on or try to modify and see um if the advocates do do or don't want to go all the way to the ballot in other words in the spring of 2024 they would have this question before them let's call it let's say it's the MCAS one. it would say the people have put before you this this question will you drop the will you get rid of the high stakes element graduation requirement for MCAS?" and the legislature can decide what it will do sometimes there's negotiations sometimes they pass it sometimes they say sorry we're not interested And then if it passes in November of 2024, Buzz, you're raising an important issue, which is it's a law, which means legislature can also change the law. And in the past there has been some pretty, I think terrible cases in which the legislature has said, well, that passed, but we're gonna modify it now, or even ignore it like campaign finance many years ago. On the other hand, there is a strong sense that once it goes before the people and the people vote for it in a general election, that they must honor that. And in the vast majority of cases, the legislature does honor what was put, what was voted on by the
1: people. Max Page, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. I want to go back to the beginning of this conversation and in which you said there were four questions that the poll asked. You are telling us now that your board, the board of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, has under consideration, moving forward with one or two of them, which ones would not be, are you not considering at this point putting to a vote and and the two that you are, repeat that for us, if you would please, so we can be clear.
4: Sure, the ones that we are considering and debating in the next few weeks and we'll need to decide by August are eliminating the graduation requirement, the MCAS graduation requirement for students. All students in Massachusetts um, have to graduate, have to pass the 10th grade mcast pass a score in order to get a high school diploma we are one of only eight states that have that requirement that's one and the second would be a guarantee that massachusetts residents who go to a public college or university in massachusetts can graduate without debt the other two for a variety of reasons we're just you know simply not going to pursue the right to strike for educators we're not going to pursue as a ballot initiative and um ending the receivership. We are still part of a coalition, the Thrive Act Coalition, that is trying to get rid of receivership as well as the graduation requirement and create a new assessment system. And we're also part of, of course, leading with our Senator Joe Comerford on uh, the Cherish Act, which is a broad blueprint for public higher education, which includes debt-free public higher education.
1: Max Page is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. Max, can you stay with us for a minute? We have to take a break. We absolutely have to. But I want to come back and I want to ask you a couple more questions about MCAS as a graduation requirement. Because when you come on the show, that is something that people talk to me about and want to hear more about. Can you stay for another minute?
0: I can indeed. I'd really appreciate it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A journalist suing the Northwestern DA's office for redacting the names of police officers from a public records request says the district attorney shared misinformation during a live radio interview on WHMP.
9: And the amount of misinformation he managed to pack into that short amount of time was really astounding.
8: When District Attorney David Sullivan appeared on Talk the Talk last week, he claimed his department did not possess the records journalist Andrew Quimar had requested.
7: I think the public records
10: law could be clearer as to whether these specific records are available.
8: But Quimer said he had already received such records and it was just the names of the officers that were redacted.
9: The exception to the public records law they're citing, the privacy exemption, it actually explicitly says that it does not apply to any records related to an investigation of law enforcement misconduct.
8: The state supervisor of records has ruled in favor of Quimera's case three times now, but the DA's office still has not complied with the request. Amherst Pelham educators now have a new three-year contract. The Amherst Regional School Committee ratified the deal with an 8-1 vote on Wednesday night. This followed contentious negotiations between the Education Association and the district over the past 18 months. The deal includes cost-of-living increases and higher pay for paraeducators. The West Hampton Fire Department was called to a fire around 7 p.m. last night on Tipping Rock Road. Due to the limited water supply, the first crew used foam to knock down the flames. Mutual aid was provided by Hatfield, Huntington, Chesterfield, Williamsburg, East Hampton, Northampton, Chester, Montgomery, Cummington, and Southampton Fire Departments.
11: We're seeing a bit of a sun-cloud mix today with the chance of showers in the late afternoon. We're seeing highs in the mid to low 80s. Then tomorrow, the showers do continue, highs in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. This
8: news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media.
12: Yo soy Johan Rachid Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El Departamento de Justicia instó a un juez el jueves a rechazar los intentos de Donald Trump de posponer su juicio por documentos clasificados, diciendo que no había fundamento para una demora abierta solicitada por sus abogados. Los fiscales federales propusieron el mes pasado un juicio el 11 de diciembre para Trump, quien está acusado de 37 delitos graves relacionados con el mal manejo de documentos clasificados en su propiedad de Mar-a-Lago, aunque la fecha real dependerá del juez. Los abogados de Trump respondieron esta semana con una solicitud de postergación, No propusieron una fecha específica, pero dijeron que el caso se refería a cuestiones legales novedosas y que proceder con un juicio dentro de los seis meses es irrazonable y resultaría en un error judicial. El jueves, los fiscales del equipo fiscal especial de Jack Smith respondieron pidiéndole a la jueza federal de distrito, Eileen Cannon, que no pospusiera el juicio más allá de la fecha de diciembre que recomendaron. En otras informaciones, la Agencia contra el Cáncer de la Organización Mundial de la Salud ha considerado que el endulzante aspartame, que se encuentra en las bebidas gaseosas dietéticas e innumerables otros alimentos, es una posible causa de cáncer, mientras que un grupo de expertos separado que analizó la misma evidencia dijo que todavía considera que el sustituto del azúcar es seguro en cantidades limitadas. Los diferentes resultados de las revisiones coordinadas se publicaron el viernes temprano. El aspartame se une a una categoría con más de otros 300 posibles agentes causantes de cáncer, sin embargo la guía sobre el uso del endulzante no está cambiando, el aspartame es un endulzante artificial bajo en calorías que es unas 200 veces más dulce que el azúcar, es un polvo blanco e inodoro y el edulcolorante artificial más utilizado en el mundo. Yo soy Johan Reshi Y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
8: This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. We were talking in the earlier segment about the MTA's intent or consideration of bringing to the Massachusetts voters in 2024 something that has to be initiated really, really soon in order to get on the ballot in November of 2024. A question about whether, and a question that would in fact become a law if it were to pass, about MCAS and MCAS as a graduation requirement. It's a high-stakes test. There was, of course, an enormous push—what, ten years ago, I guess, maybe uh, more—for testing so that we can make sure that schools are in fact teaching students. And the MTA has thought this was a program that, in fact, hurt kids, hurt education, hurt the ability of teachers to teach and students to learn. But a lot of people still have a question, Max, of don't we need to have minimum requirements for graduation so that a high school diploma really is meaningful? And I'd appreciate your responding to to that argument, which is, well, the tests actually serve a purpose. Your thoughts?
4: So a, a couple things on this bill. First is, Um, What we are proposing, if we go forward and what is part of the Thrive Act, a a broad bill about changing our assessment system, is eliminating the high stakes elements. That is, in this case, the graduation requirement of the passing the MCAS. Again, only eight states in the nation still say that you must pass the, the statewide standardized test in order to get a high school diploma if we win this or if the thrive this ballot initiative or if the thrive act passes before that there will still be mcas every year so there will be a way that because that's federal law to require that so that's point one. The second is you ask about don't we need standards well we have state standards we actually have very high state standards and each school district must develop their curriculum in order to meet those standards and what we've what has been shown over and over again is that educator evaluation our teacher evaluation of students of that curriculum is a better predictor of success than some standardized test on a narrow set of criteria and finally my final point on this is that what we care about in our public schools is so far beyond these narrow um, a few narrow academic subjects they are important ones but there's other things that we care about but the MCAS has deformed our public schools by making this the focus, these, these few tests on English and and, um, and math and the like. And so that's, that is why we think that eliminating the graduation requirement will allow us to focus on the standards and the broader goals we have for our public schools.
3: You know, I know that sometimes people's eyes glaze over when we have this conversation about MCAS, but I just wanna get personal for a minute, Max. My mother dropped out of school uh, at 10th grade couldn't, her mother couldn't afford to raise her anymore. She married to get out of her house. Um, And she decided after we were older, she was a housewife. She decided to go to school and uh, she wanted to learn how to be an assistant to a local physician. So she took a course so she could get certified as a medical technologist. And she got over the course of the 12 week course that she took, she got hundreds and 95s and 96 in each segment but then there was this big cumulative test at the end that she had to pass in order to get certification. And she's so panicked that she got a 59 on it when it was the same content that she had repeatedly gotten a hundred on some people just don't test under pressure. That's what we're talking about here.
4: That's right. I mean, there, are, there are thousands of students, who have not been able to graduate uh, simply because of this test, and as I say, it narrows the curriculum, especially for um, for districts that have traditionally um, scored lower, which tend to be students, um, low-income students in our in our gateway cities, and so they are then given more test prep, more time is taken away from actual. Real education in order to get those scores up because they have such high-stakes elements. So I want to be clear that yes, that is the argument out there, um, but there is no proof, zero proof, um, that the the high-stakes element, which was introduced, a, a you know a decade after um, the after 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 the MCAS started being used. Um, it was only a high stakes after that, and it has not had any positive effect on narrowing achievement gaps and the like. And in many ways, it has caused exactly the problems, Buzz, you're referring to, which is thousands of students being denied a diploma who otherwise performed very well in high school. And then we know what happens with students who um, do not have a diploma where it leads them in terms of income, in terms of the school to prison pipeline. So we think this is the time, finally, to get rid of this high-stakes element of MCAS.
1: Max, I'd like to conclude uh, this part of the conversation by asking you about this topic you just just focused on, which was teaching kids how to take a test. Uh, And I still remember to this day preparing for the bar exam, learning how to take the test. A little bit of what was reviewed was the content, but mostly was how to get the answer right, not how to learn the law, but how to guess right on the test. And if you could spend 30 seconds with us explaining how that hurts kids, I'd appreciate it.
4: Yes. So again, if the MCAS were a diagnostic um, where it dropped in, people took it, and it provided some information to to a teacher along with the other observations they have, the other work, it would have perhaps some value. The problem is that because it has high stakes for the schools, for the students, that what that what that means is that many schools do lots of weeks in prepping for the tests, so that their students are doing better, and so that they can they can brag about that. And frankly, there is real consequences for school districts that have very low scores. That is one of the reasons why they are sent into receivership or are um, get you know greater intrusive oversight from the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. So again, standardized tests may have a place as a diagnostic as they did when I was a child growing up at Wildwood School in Amherst where we took a test maybe, but it didn't have a high stakes impact. So that's what we're really talking about is all the test prep, all the time spent on these tests that have such a high stakes impact on students.
1: We leave it there. Max Page, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate your time and insights.
4: Thanks, Bill. Thanks, Buzz.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg
13: what's cooking at river valley co-op here's avid eater grocery shopper and co-op member bill newman
1: ah summer in new england and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries basil and tomatoes an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables in the co-op meat department local chicken from reed farm house-made brats sausage lots of grilling ideas and in the co-op cheese department get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad
14: River Valley Co-op, wild about local, everyone is welcome.
15: Saga Communications of New England is looking for an IT administrator to work in a fast-paced and challenging work environment. This position requires a strong self-starter with the ability to quickly learn new processes. You're a team player that can take ownership of local IT operations and contribute to a team of IT engineers. You must possess the ability to juggle and prioritize work while supporting numerous employees in three locations in Western Mass. There will be regular travel to Springfield, Northampton, and Greenfield. Flexibility is the key to success. The ideal candidate will be be somebody who has an interest in the broadcast radio industry and knowledge of LAN and WAN support. You should understand Windows Active Directory, networks, router, and firewall functions, and have experience with desktop support of Office 365 and utilizing a help desk environment supporting users in multiple locations. And yes, you'll receive great benefits. Please send your cover letter and resume to ITjobs at springfieldrocks.com. Saga Communications of New England is an equal opportunity employer.
16: At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986.
1: And this is ArtBeat with Donnabelle Cassis. Donnabelle has with her and us today a very, very, very special guest. Donnabelle, the microphone is yours.
13: Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, tonight is the second Friday of the month, and you, you know what that is, right? It's Arts Night Out. In Northampton. And I was going to get sh- that
1: question right. It wasn't a high stakes test, but I knew the answer.
13: <laughs> <laughs> you get bonus points, Bill. Um, there's a show at a gallery that some people may not know about. It's at the Northampton Senior Center. And these shows have been curated by painter Betsy Stone, who sh- we should all know photographer Paul Schul and artist writer Nanette Vonnegut. So there's some quality shows happening at this gallery. You need to see this. So this month, photographer Nona Hatte has a show titled New York City 1969. She joins us today. Welcome. Thank you. Nona, you've been a freelance photographer since 1969, since I've been alive. What started your journey with the camera?
5: Uh, I just love to capture uh, people, um, things that that attract me that I can then show people that inspire them or um, somehow give them ideas or take portraits that people can see themselves uh in a positive way so that's been the main thing
13: well you know your your it looks i've seen some of your work and they are stunning visions and right. you've been in the presence of some pretty iconic visions of our time can you name, name some of them because the list is just mind-boggling
5: <laughs> so i think we made a list of 130 Musicians I've photographed um, working on my visual autobiography, so which is causing me to go back and (laughs) evaluate everything that I've done. And um, of course, the most famous is Jimi Hendrix, um, and that was nineteen sixty nine, May 18th
1: You got Um, to photograph Jimi Hendrix.
5: (laughs) Photograph Jimi Hendrix, yes. And And Tina Turner, and who else? You you know, uh, James Brown. I worked for him um photographed him uh uh richie havens um uh, the the list goes on i in the 1969 i photographed at the apollo a lot of shows at the fillmore east um electric circus uh, blues Uh, i love all kinds of music so um it i didn't go intentionally to every concert these are concerts that i just loved the music and went to uh and Always photographed.
13: <laughs> well, you can tell because you have captured some amazing still images of these famous artists in their element, and you can see that in your photographs. There's one particular photograph that I've seen of yours of Tina Turner, and of course, Tina Turner recently passed, and she is just such an amazing, important figure in music history. But there's this one photograph you captured of her. She looks like an angel. Can you describe that one for us?
5: She was wearing, I was very lucky because she was wearing, actually, I found out a Bob Mackie co- costume or outfit that had these wonderful silver wings that she, she just when she entered the stage, she pulled out and soared across the stage. And she didn't wear that costume in very many concerts. So I was extremely lucky. Um, it was also in a small venue at the um, Fillmore, at the um, Fairmount Hotel in San Francisco. Um, and I got special commission from her manager. So I was the only photographer and I was right by the stage, um, wow. making, you know, energetic connection with her. Um, wow. So th- that was like an amazing, he actually told me when I asked him the day before, he said, I asked him whether I could photograph Tina and he said no i wasn't working for a newspaper or a magazine i was an artist photo artist and i gave him some of my jimi hendrix pictures there you go (laughs) no tina these and today he said tina said you could shoot the show (laughs) that was was pretty awesome Uh,
13: well, if you say if you just mention the name Jimi Hendrix, never never mind the photograph. You're like, "Okay, never mind, go ahead." Uh, she must have been an electrifying presence. I can only imagine yeah. what it was like to be in a room with her, let alone just being able to capture her on film. Yeah. Now, I notice a lot of the photographs are black and white. Is that your main uh, you know, focus when you're using the camera? Are you implying mostly black and white prints, or are you actually using color?
5: I I really really love black and white because it demands more skill. Maybe you you have to you you're relying on your composition and your lighting, not on your color. So to me, um, it's it's more challenging and and to me satisfying when you get a good shot in black and white. So. I shot black and white for the first probably 30 years of of photographing. And then in the 90s, I started working for George Clinton and the Funkadelics. Whoa, Whoa. that you can encounter. So I had so I started shooting color um, and did a lot of uh, shots of them on their mothership tour with my
13: gosh,
5: the mothership landing and George coming out of it and everything. And I became uh, their photographer for a long time and still good friends with them. So that's, you know, an amazing thing. And then now I put my photographs onto fabric and do fabric design and uh, and, uh, fashion. With my photographs. So it's evolved through this time uh, from the basic black and white and
13: then 69 to it on today. Oh, it's on today, yeah. Oh my gosh. Nona, to be a fly on the wall when you're working, I (laughs) mean, you know, how is it not? (laughs) Uh, Bill, you look like you have this question.
1: I do. I wanna know your show is at the Senior Center. What's the title of the exhibit again? It's
5: 1969. New York City. So it's all of photographs that I took in New York my first year of photography and there are like peace marches and, um, and uh, portraits and um, some of the some of the musicians I photographed on a lot of Washington Square because that was my first essay was three Sundays in Washington Square with all, because Washington Square was fabulous in 69 with all the different musicians playing in different Parts of the of the park, so um, I did like an essay on that. So those pictures are displayed as well.
1: Yeah, I was. You've
5: got a memoir. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no.
1: Can we buy these photographs? Are they for sale?
13: (laughs) Uh, A few. Oh my goodness, what an opportunity. Now, Nona, you have a memoir that you're in the process of working with a publisher. And so these photographs, I understand, are just a selection of some of the prints that will be featured in this memoir. Tell us a little bit about that. That's, I call it my
5: my visual autobiography. And it really is a way for me to organize maybe tens of thousands of photographs that I have. I, you know, I jokingly say I want to leave something organized for my children because (laughs) some of the things don't have the name written on the back or what they are, so I need to go through the pictures and organize the chapters of my life in visual, Um, so it's a big job, but
13: (laughs) Wow, I mean, we're we're privileged to be able to see some of these things, and if you want to see Nona's Hate's work tonight. It's opening from five to seven p.m. at the Northampton Senior Center, and it's up through the month of July, correct? Or through uh, August? Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, the, you, you you've got to see these. I I just am in awe of your work, Nona, and the fact that you're organizing this is a real treat for uh, for us. And what a legacy! Thank you Thank so you. much for sharing your work with us, and good luck tonight. Thank you so much.
1: Wow. Donabelle, you bring the most amazing guests. Thank you so very much. Nona Hate, I can't wait to see this exhibit. S- save at least one <laughs> photograph so I could buy it, please. And Donabelle <laughs> is so excited. Will somebody please give some oxygen to Bell? She's so excited about this. <laughs> Again, at the Northampton Senior Center, the opening is tonight, 5 to 7. Thank you yes. both so very much.
5: Thank you.
8: this
6: time,
16: we are the children.
7: My name is Silas Cuff. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Caring for
6: someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're gonna burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI 2 Turners Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock.
14: I'm Linda Kenyon in Washington. President Biden makes good on his pledge to find a way to provide student loan debt relief after the Supreme Court invalidated a separate plan two weeks ago.
7: I believe the court's decision to strike down my student debt relief program as a mistake was wrong. I'm not going to stop fighting to deliver borrowers what they need.
14: Today, the Department of Education will begin notifying borrowers their student loan debt will be forgiven. This new program will affect more than 800,000 borrowers with $39 billion in federal student loans. Police have arrested a serial murder suspect on Long Island, New York. CBS's Pat Milton reports. Law enforcement sources confirmed for CBS News that Suffolk County Police have a suspect in custody in connection with the Gilgo Beach murders. Suffolk and state police are at the scene in Massapequa, Long Island. At least 10 people were killed dating back to 2010. Record-breaking heat persists in much of the U.S., but we are not alone. Alicia Dempster is from Scotland visiting Death Valley. It's
13: very hot. I mean, especially when there's a breeze think that maybe that would give you some slight relief from the heat, but it just really does feel like an an air blow dryer is just going back in your face.
14: Temperatures have been in the triple digits in several U.S. states and around the globe. Hollywood actors are on strike after the union representing them and the students, studios and streaming services failed to reach a contract agreement. Actor Dawson Bloom is on the picket line.
15: Besides like the top like point zero 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 one percent of actors, everyone else is not healthy at all. A lot of actors have to have uh, second or third or even fourth jobs uh, in order to just make a decent living.
14: Disney CEO Bob Iger tells CNBC the union needs to moderate its demands. There's
7: a level of expectation that they have that is just not realistic. And they are adding to a set of challenges that this business is already facing.
14: Hollywood writers have been on strike since May. Actor Kevin Spacey's sex assault trial continues in London today. CBS's Vicki Barker has the latest. Spacey has just suggested that one of his four accusers, whose allegation concerns a single incident in 2005, is lying for money. He's insisted any relations he had with two others were consensual, but admitted under cross-examination that he might have misread the signals from the fourth. All four of Spacey's accusers are entitled to lifelong anonymity under British law. Vicki Barker, CBS News, London. In Paris... France is celebrating the national holiday, Bastille Day, with a parade in Paris. The annual event celebrates the start of the French Revolution. This is CBS News.
0: Find great hires fast with Indeed. Their end-to-end hiring solution makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com
6: credit. Viking providing all-inclusive voyages on rivers, oceans, and lakes around the world. Designed for curious travelers with interest in science, history, culture, and cuisine. Viking chairman Torsten Hagen often says, Viking offers experiences for the thinking person, with no children and no casinos on board. Learn more at Viking.com. That's Viking.com.
15: Gah, I'm so stressed. Our business is growing. We've got people all over now. Ooma. What is that? Meditation? I'm recommending the Uma cloud phone system with auto attendant and more than 50 features. Uma. Yep. Switching to Uma is a cinch. Just $24.95 per month per user, plus taxes and fees. Ooma. Now you're feeling it. Find small business calm at ooma.com slash radio. That's Ooma.com slash radio.
14: When do we feel our healthiest? CBS's Stacey Lynn says the answer should not.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A journalist suing the Northwestern DA's office for redacting the names of police officers from a public records request says the district attorney shared misinformation during a live radio interview on WHMP.
9: And the amount of misinformation he managed to pack into that short amount of time was really astounding.
8: When District Attorney David Sullivan appeared on Talk the Talk last week, he claimed his department did not possess the records journalist Andrew Cuimar had requested.
10: I think the public records law could be clearer as to whether these specific records are available.
8: But Quimer said he had already received such records and it was just the names of the officers that were redacted.
9: The exception to the public records law they're citing, the privacy exemption, it actually explicitly says that it does not apply to any records related to an investigation of law enforcement misconduct.
8: The state supervisor of records has ruled in favor of Quimera's case three times now, but the DA's office still has not complied with the request. Amherst Pelham educators now have a new three-year contract. The Amherst Regional School Committee ratified the deal with an 8-1 vote on Wednesday night. This followed contentious negotiations between the Education Association and the district over the past 18 months. The deal includes cost of living increases and higher pay for paraeducators. The West Hampton Fire Department was called to a fire around 7 p.m. last night on Tipping Rock Road. Due to the limited water supply, the first crew used foam to knock down the flames. Mutual aid was provided by Hatfield, Huntington, Chesterfield, Williamsburg, East Hampton, Northampton, Chester, Montgomery, Cummington and Southampton Fire Departments.
11: We're seeing a bit of a sun cloud mix today with the chance of showers in the late afternoon. We're seeing highs in the mid to low 80s. Then tomorrow, the showers do continue highs in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP.
0: This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP.
3: And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And, Bill, we have a really special guest um, in terms of this region's uh, economic um, interests, uh, long-term and short-term interests, right here in the studio. But before we do that, there's an article in New York Times uh, today about federal uh, drug administration, food and drug administration, uh, having approved something that I think is going to be life-changing for a lot of people.
1: I I think it is. It's been an issue that has been... Uh, debated for decades and decades and credit to the Biden administration for actually uh, resolving it. And I, of course am uh, just moved that this administration has again effectively done something that has been up, has been held up for decades and decades. The FDA has approved the selling of a pill over the counter available as of early 2024. the Food and Drug Administration, On Thursday, yesterday, approved a birth control pill to be sold without a prescription for the first time in the United States. It's a milestone that will significantly expand access to contraception. And, of course, it is much of the right wing that is opposed to abortion is also opposed, uh, curiously and ironically, to contraception. I think this is a really significant step for the country for the Food and Drug Administration, and for people who want to control their own reproductive health.
3: That's really well said, Bill. It's particularly important right now as uh, even the funding for, our, uh, for the Pentagon, the $850 billion, is being held up right now because about 20 people in the House think that uh, it is wrong for abortion services and reproductive rights services, uh, medical services, to be provided by the military uh, for the 20% of the troops that are females and those who care about those females, um, right now is a great time for the FDA to make a statement by approving an over-the-counter drug such as that.
1: Yeah, a statement and a very, very practical and important program.
3: So kudos to the FDA. Meanwhile, right here in studio, we have Steve Ellis. Steve Ellis is a town administrator for the, uh, for the town of Montague, and he also is a is newly appointed to the Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council, no small thing. This is newly formed by Governor Healy's administration. Welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's our pleasure, Steve. We're really happy to have you. So first of all, um, why is it important that we now have this Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council? What What do you think is the impact it may have?
17: Well, so it's important to understand what the council is. It is a, uh, a short-term uh, entity if you will at the start of each new governor's um, term they're required to develop a economic development plan for the Commonwealth one that has specific goals objectives and criteria for success and the process was kickstarted by a first meeting in May and we have the next six months from now um, through December 31st to develop and deliver that plan. And so uh, it's important because as Governor Healey begins her term, we need to make certain that, that we are, from the, from the rural perspective, putting rural needs, opportunities on that agenda for economic development. This process will define the programs and the policies that will direct investment in rural areas for the purpose of economic development for the next four years at least.
3: So when, when you say we on the committee, on the council, mm-hmm. how many people are on the council?
17: Um, I believe it's approximately 30 people who are on the council, and it really represents a, a very diverse set of stakeholders in terms of the different interests that are represented. Uh, I was surprised, quite frankly, when I received the call. Uh, I had certainly had some uh, you know, ongoing engagement with the Executive Office of Economic Development over the course of the last several years in trying to bring project opportunities uh, and grant opportunities to Montague, and uh, apparently they felt I would be a, you know, a thoughtful and uh, hopefully tenacious um, advocate for rural communities in that planning process. Yeah,
3: the fact that there are thirty members and that um, they were trying to uh, cover the entire gamut of what Massachusetts is and can be, uh, it's pretty, I won't ask you to respond, but it, uh, you must feel flattered that they asked you, they invited you, People, you must have impressed somebody to be invited, but uh, is it your job, so you're the town administrator f- for Montague? I am. The great city of Montague and
17: the five villages of Montague, but um, your purview here is beyond Montague, right? It very much is, and uh, so Montague has a set of needs, and you know, if one were to look at rural Massachusetts, the first thing that you would observe is that, um, well, first and foremost, the definition affords as many as a hundred, and there are many different definitions of rural, but if you looked at the Rural Policy Advisory Commission's um, definition of urban, I'm sorry, rural, you'd see that there are about 180 different communities in Massachusetts that are considered rural by those definitions. And they're incredibly diverse. And
3: by the way, following you, we expect of Senator Paul Mark, I think he is the Senate
17: representative to that uh, that rural... Uh, Policy Advisory Committee. Yep. And uh, Representative Blay has been very active as well with that and has participated in previous meeting that I, that I attended with them to get some of their input and feedback.
3: So, <clears throat> what on behalf of us who live in this rural region. Um, what priorities have you set in terms
17: of your voice on the council? Sure. So, well, first and foremost, you know, uh, Secretary of Economic Development, Yvonne Howe, has been really clear in trying to pound a particular sensibility into all members' heads, and that is that we're really focused on Massachusetts and what's going to benefit the, you know, the Commonwealth. And uh, from the time I... Took my job as town administrator in Montague some six and a half years ago, you know, what I've what I've said is we need a differentiated strategy to support rural growth and prosperity in the Commonwealth. And if one looks at the rural communities, again, you know, the communities of Martha's Vineyard are rural, and they have so little in common with a community such as Montague, which is rural, or a community such as Ashfield, which is rural. And yet there are some very uh, cross-cutting themes that, that emerge. And so, you know, my goal has is clearly to make certain that there is a strong rural presence and set of priorities that are a, a primary feature of the economic development plan. Um,
3: are all those priorities in the realm of quote-unquote economics, that is, is it just money and financial resources, uh, and how we how they get allocated to this region, or are there other priorities that the council might entertain?
17: Well, I, I think that you know the economy is intertwined with so many other things that affect quality of life. And so, you know, housing, equity, access to employment opportunity, equal access to employment opportunity, um, ensuring that there is, you know, adequate health care in a region, ensuring the quality of education, all of these things intersect. With economic development, and so and and there are different groups that are focused on all of these different matters, different sort of sector groups, if you will. So you know, I feel like we have a lot of uh, kind of overlapping mission and advocacy that can occur in this context.
3: We are talking to you Town Administrator and a member of the newly formed Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council. Uh, representing our rural region, I think Dan.
18: I do have a question. Yeah, um, can you talk a little bit about housing. We have a lot of people come on the show that talk about housing initiatives, the the need for more affordable housing in this area. It seems like it's a medium to long term necessity in this region. Can you talk a little bit about what Montague is doing specifically?
17: Sure. Well, I mean Montague itself recently adopted a 40R zoning, um, which you know will facilitate.
18: Uh, I think there was
17: just an important grant you know,
18: that it, was given to both Greenfield and Montague. There, there was, and what and what does that mean? I'm sorry. The-
17: so, well, I mean, really, what it does is it um, establishes certain areas through zoning, a zoning overlay district, uh, that facilitate the placement of you know mixed affordable housing uh, in in a particular area or community. So, in Montague, you know, we have identified at least two and possibly three sites that we really think uh... affordable housing would be beneficial for uh... the grant that you just mentioned should help habitat for humanity realize the implementation of you know what will be several units so it is not a game changer for the county but it is Um, for some lives but it, it, it absolutely is and it's in a location that is immediately across the street from the montague town hall which is in the incredible village of turners falls and, um, so it will be accessible place...
3: to people who might not have transportation, things like that.
17: Exactly. It is on all of the Franklin Regional Transportation Authorities, bus routes, and et cetera. Uh, we've also, you know, we worked with the EPA two years ago to clean up the site of the former Griswold Cotton Mill. And um, that site also referred to sometimes as Railroad Salvage is another one where we could potentially see a much larger facility. Um, not only have we approached that through zoning, but we've worked really hard to advocate at the state level for the repair and replacement of bridges um, that would reconnect that parcel, both for motor vehicle traffic and pedestrian traffic, to the center of the village of Turners Falls. So Steve
1: Ellis, as a member of the newly created Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council, I would like you to address a question that we have asked many elected officials on this show many times. And it is about regional planning. And mm-hmm. everyone's in favor of regional planning. I've never heard anyone say that they were against it or it was not a good idea, and yet I don't really see a lot of it. Tell me I'm wrong and why
17: uh, well, i regional planning and regional collaboration are probably two different things. Uh, but one of my one of my closest ah, I'm colleagues. wrong already. okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference? Well, <laughs> well, you know so regional planning is a commitment to actually act and function in a coordinated fashion in a region um regional collaboration is similar but easier to attain i think so you know regional planning planning would require that potentially right that there be similar zoning similar policies um and a we are sharing in all growth in an all problems kind of mindset. That that is my view of it. Well, and also I'm not a, sharing the vision. That is right. what should this region look like 10 years from now, 20 right. years from now? Regional collaboration is a little easier to come to because it means that you are and and regional resource sharing uh, because it means that you can work more situationally to take advantage of opportunities, leveraging regional capacity as opposed to, you know, your own discrete capacity. So I don't know if I've answered your question well, well here, or here, not. here's the
1: thing. Yeah. In terms of regional planning, it seems to me you want to know what the bus routes are so that the people – so you might know where – uh, housing can be built, or whether those bus routes are accessible uh, to people in new housing, and whether they're, uh, whether housing can be uh, built b- with some economies of scale, because various cities are buying huge amounts of material and the like. I mean, that's the kind of thing I'm, sure. I'm asking
17: about. Okay, well, you know, I think in Franklin County, there is a lot of regional collaboration, coordination, um, and, and planning, and so You know, I can say that the town of Montague works really actively, proactively, with the Franklin Regional Transportation Authority and with the Franklin Regional Council of Governments, uh, so that we are considering these things. Um, If one didn't, then the effort would be wasted, and we can't see another vision for what makes sense, quite frankly.
3: We are talking with Steve Ellis. He's not only the town administrator for uh, uh, the great town of Montague. But he also is a new member, a couple months old, attended a couple of meetings so far after the Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I want to ask you about grants. Grants get dispensed all the time, but here in western Massachusetts, it's a struggle to get recognized when we are applying for grants. I'm going to talk to Steve Ellis about that right after this.
0: More talk the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. To the people. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, Bye weekdays to at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman every weekday from noon to 3 right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP.
1: San Francisco's North Beach in the late 1950s. A new sound, a new scene, and the rich tradition of American folk music bolts into the national spotlight. Leading the charge, the Kingston Trio. Hang down your hip tongue. THE KINGSTON TRIO, A NIGHT AT NORTHAMPTON'S ACADEMY OF MUSIC, WEDNESDAY, JULY 19TH.
6: WELL, LET ME TELL YOU OF THE STORY OF A MAN NAMED CHARLIE ON A TRAGIC AND FATEFUL DAY.
1: TODAY'S KINGSTON TRIO, PLAYING THE TIMELESS SONGS. GET TICKETS NOW AT THE ACADEMY OF MUSIC WEBSITE OR BOX OFFICE. More than 50 years after Tom Dooley shot to the top of the charts and the Kingston Trio's spirited folk music captured the hearts of the nation, the Trio lives on, bringing all the energy to these enduring songs. The Kingston Trio, Wednesday, July 19th, 7 p.m., Academy of Music, downtown Northampton
16: the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli. Open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
3: And we are back with Steve Ellison. We're talking about the governor's uh, Massachusetts Economic Development Planning Council, of which he's a member along with about uh, 29 of his Colleagues from across the state representing all the regions of Massachusetts in trying to develop a planning um, In the economic development arena, and um, I know Steve Ellis when I was uh, Reading uh, in preparation for our conversation today um, I read this quote from you um, You emphasize that a priority of yours on the council is to scrutinize the state's grant process which typically caters towards communities with a high rate of job creation and capital investment. What does that have to do with your representing those of us who live in a rural region in the context of the council? Sure. Um, it's really important,
17: and it is, you know, part of what defines who gets the resources. You know, there at some times, long ago I had an economics professor who said, you know, one of the primary roles of government is to correct for market failures, and, and I believe that you know. Um, and market yet, failures?
3: There are market failures? <laughs>
17: Apparently. Um, and, and you know, if we think about it in the context of uh, rural grant making, you know, what we know is that to the extent that policymakers are always looking for bang for the buck, for return on investment, it tends to advantage communities where you can, through having some government share of a project financed, where you will see a huge return in terms of jobs or private investment. And the challenge in rural communities is that there's very little capital that is ready to be invested in a community such as Montague, for example. And so when we're applying for a MassWorks grant, we have to actually be able to show that there is going to be high job creation, high private capital leveraging through the program, and and those are very high hurdles. It's just, very I different do, I, if you're trying to do it in Cambridge. I want
3: to hear the end of that, but I don't know what a Mass Works grant is.
17: Sure. So Mass Works is one of the programs um, that has been established by the Commonwealth to make large investments in economic development projects. And so Montague was successful in gaining uh, support, a uh, $3 million grant, three years ago. For investments in our Canal District, which is a historic industrial district, that uh, you know, honestly, at one point it was the economic engine, certainly of Montague and Turner's Falls, but really part of that economic en- engine for the region. And on it sit distressed mills at this point in time. And one of our jobs as municipal officials is to find the next step forward in the future for that. Like Holyoke. But they're right, and they're they're complex sites. And the business case for redeveloping them is going to be weak. They are not shovel ready, but they are shovel worthy, so to speak. And so that's one of our great challenges, is how do we make certain that in a world that really values kind of economic efficiency and, and, and return on investment, we are attuning our grant programs to the opportunity and the need to make investments in rural communities where it's not gonna be as easy to show huge private investment or um huge job creation we are less efficient from an investment standpoint which does not mean that rural issues and rural opportunities should be neglected because you know like any chain right you know the commonwealth is only as healthy as the commonwealth as a whole is healthy and vibrant
3: right it, it's floating all the boats higher in the harbor and Uh, You know, by by focusing grants on those communities that have a high rate of job creation and capital investment, it's sort of like the way we fund our schools. Like the the more affluent a community is, the better its schools are going to be, and the more affluent it's going to remain because it's going to be a desirable place to go. But really, here in this region, we have so many human resources and other resources. Grants should be... Targeting those regions for their potential, not just for their history.
17: I strongly agree with you, and that is one of the sensibilities. And it's you know when the economic development planning council met just earlier this week, that was one of the points of emphasis that I tried to bring. Um, they will be looking at criteria and metrics that that are fundable, right? Because this pitch, you know, the governor doesn't just. They can create. She can create an agenda, but she also has to get the buy-in of the legislature and various interests. And so we have to make certain that, you know, the, the old quantitative metrics that tend to drive program creation everywhere, oh, not so just in Massachusetts. Stop there. The t- yeah.
1: quantitative metrics that drive program creation. Are we talking about money coming from the legislature?
17: Well, ultimately. So t- to answer your question, the quantitative metrics that drive things are those return on investment, how many jobs will a program, because that's how someone sells the success of what they've done, okay. right? Um, the legislature needs to be on board in funding, you know, strategic program investments.
1: So when you talk about return on investment, you're talking about the jobs, the impact on the community, the over the uh, potential synergistic effects and how other development can cre- be created from this development. That's what you mean by the return on the investment, the amount of money that this legislature is uh, making available, not just dollars, Um, numbers.
17: Well, you know, I I think that spending decisions are informed by the, the sensibility that every dollar of public money that is spent should have the greatest impact possible. And my point, again, is that rural region is different. Rural communities are important and that we need to make sure that we correct for the fact that we can never perhaps show the same kind of immediate investment, but that the investment is disproportionately important in rural communities.
3: Uh, In the couple minutes that we have left, Steve Ellis, I want to ask you, as one of about 30, Mm -hmm. um, who have been, this group has been curated, carefully selected, vetted, to make sure that all perspectives are being uh, uh, represented in the Economic Development Council. But how do you make your voice heard, one of 30 people? Because all of us here in these rural regions, we care deeply that your voice is heard. How do you make sure that
17: our perspective is, is considered? Yeah, um, great question. And I think there's actually a really important development this year. Um, you know, when I walked into that room for the first time, I was immediately given the opportunity to lead a sector. Um, rural interests were identified as a critical sort of uh, a focal point. And so, you know, as we consider healthcare, housing, transportation, um, advanced manufacturing, uh, you know, information technology, life sciences, right alongside that, was the category of rural interests and we're not a sector per se in the classic economic sense but we're a critical interest and i've been given the opportunity to lead that interest not just be another voice in the room but be a voice of a group that will always be called upon to weigh in and share its opinions and uh bring its force forward
3: well my hope is that in the future as the council's mission becomes clarified in in actual What's going to be happening on the ground? What is it going to do? I hope you keep us informed about it because I know our listeners are quite interested in the Council's view of economic development in this region. It Every aspect of all of our lives is impacted. I want to thank you, Steve Ellis, for what you do, not just for Montague, but for this entire region.
17: Absolutely. And next time, I would love to spend a little more time talking about some of the great stuff that's going on in Montague and its villages. Terrific.
3: We're going to be right back. When we come back, I think we're going to have Senator Paul Mark uh, talking uh, about the Rural Advisory Council, of which he's a member. We'll be right back.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.
8: For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A journalist suing the Northwestern DA's office for redacting the names of police officers from a public records request says the district attorney shared misinformation during a live radio interview on WHMP.
9: And the amount of misinformation he managed to pack into that short amount of time was really astounding.
8: When District Attorney David Sullivan appeared on Talk the Talk last week, he claimed his department did not possess the records journalist Andrew Quimar had requested.
7: I think the public records law could be
10: clearer as to whether these specific records are available.
8: But Quimer said he had already received such records and it was just the names of the officers that were redacted.
9: The exception to the public records law they're citing, the privacy exemption, it actually explicitly says that it does not apply to any records related to an investigation of law enforcement misconduct.
8: The state supervisor of records has ruled in favor of Quimera's case three times now, but the DA's office still has not complied with the request. Amherst Pelham educators now have a new three-year contract. The Amherst Regional School Committee ratified the deal with an 8-1 vote on Wednesday night. This followed contentious negotiations between the Education Association and the district over the past 18 months. The deal includes cost-of-living increases and higher pay for paraeducators. The West Hampton Fire Department was called to a fire around 7 p.m. last night on Tipping Rock Road. Due to the limited water supply, the first crew used foam to knock down the flames. Mutual aid was provided by Hatfield, Huntington, Chesterfield, Williamsburg, East Hampton, Northampton, Chester, Montgomery, Cummington, and Southampton Fire Departments.
11: We're seeing a bit of a sun cloud mix today with the chance of showers in the late afternoon. We're seeing highs in the mid to low 80s. Then tomorrow, the showers do continue. Highs in the mid to high 80s. I'm Jack Wu with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. The Branford
6: Marsalis Quartet plays a kaleidoscopic range of jazz and popular classics. They're on their way to UMass a theatrical concert-style show that chronicles the journey shared by Paul and Artie. The Simon and Garfunkel story is coming to UMass. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your
18: tickets now. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton.
6: Do you have a garden? Do you love fresh vegetables? I bet you'll love Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant. Where vegetables aren't a token afterthought, they're the reason you're there. Seven salads, nine vegetarian entrees, plus soups and the vegetable risotto cakes. A lot of the vegetables at Paul and Elizabeth's arrive from local farms. When vegetables arrive in Paul and Elizabeth's kitchen, they take center stage. Try the watercress and sea vegetable salad. Try the tempura vegetable plate with sesame ginger dipping sauce.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP.
3: We are speaking with Senator Paul Mark, whose enormous district, maybe the largest, I think it's the largest district in the history of the Massachusetts Senate, uh, includes 57 um, cities and towns throughout western Massachusetts. All four counties are represented. Senator Paul Mark is always so busy uh, has such a large ge- geographical district to, to attend to that we're always very grateful for his time. Hello, Senator.
10: Hi, how's it going? Thanks for uh, thanks for squeezing me in. I appreciate it.
3: Oh, we always, we're the ones who are grateful. So uh, I'd like to start with the Green Bank. We have some news. You've been talking for a long time about this Green Bank. What is the Green Bank, and why is it newsworthy
10: now? So the Green Bank can take a couple of forms, but essentially what it what it ends up being it's not a corner bank like you walk down the street and and put in a deposit that kind of thing it's it's more like a revolving loan fund that can issue either loans or grants and the purpose of it is it can meet different metrics for renewable energy projects and green job projects and sustainable projects that maybe a traditional corporate bank can't meet and sometimes that can be as simple as the timeline, that the timeline on payback might be much longer than a bank that has to issue, uh, you know, answer to shareholders can, can can answer. So it's a bill that I've been filing since 2014 and that the governor recently announced the creation of the Massachusetts Community Climate Bank as our first green bank and as the first green bank in the country that is going to start off being dedicated to affordable housing, which means at first, with this initial $50 million that it's being seeded with, the Green Bank is going to exist to help either current homes, future homes, future housing developments decarbonize and transition homes to net zero or as close to net zero or, or complete, completely zero carbon emissions as possible. And So there's going to be this extra funding avenue available for people that maybe, or organizations or even communities, that are having trouble Getting the funding that they need, or, or, or getting the project that they need approved, and then hopefully with twenty-seven billion dollars available federally, the establishment of this entity is going to allow us to leverage the initial funding to tie into this twenty-seven billion that's available, and let us start taking this to the next level, which is the way I envision this uh, when I've been started filing this bill.
3: Well, Senator Paul Mark, the way you envision this, once that fifty million dollars and the twenty-seven, I mean. The twenty-seven billion in federal climate dollars and this fifty million dollars in in sort of startup state funding is exhausted because they're doing really great work and and the money is going to uh, uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which is more important than ever. Then, how does it continue to function? Where does the money come from?
10: Yeah, that's where the loan element comes in. So, so if you if you're receiving one of these special loans. There's an idea that this will you, you will pay it back and that it will become profitable over time. So the, the Green Bank is intended to become self-sustainable and eventually attract private investment as well. And so while we were laughing uh, before we got on the air that it's not necessarily like a, a bank. You walk down the street on the corner. In theory, someday, if investors, private investors, people that are banking, want to start investing their money in this kind of a bank a bank that they know is undertaking projects that they care about or, or, or taking stances and matching a philosophy that people care about that could be where ultimately this starts to go or it could also the idea of this green bank could start making traditional banks maybe become more customer focused in terms of how they think as opposed to just making money we also make money by doing good so i mean this, this, this could be something that leads to like a revolution in thinking, which I think when we, when we see um, some of corporate actions lately, I think the philo- phil- philosophy of customers is having a big impact uh, these days and I think will continue where there's so much competition. It is so easy by internet for people to, to, to do business really anywhere in the world that people want to do business often with, with companies that they think share their philosophy and are, are more sustainable and, and just and equitable. <laughs>
18: This is dan uh senator i I want to know about the rebuild in this area, given the floods that have happened here recently. I know it's probably too early to talk about that because we haven't even assessed the damage, but I'm always thinking, you know six months out, a year out, we want to rebuild. What role would this green bank that you've been talking about have in rebuilding this area because if we rebuild and we're back <laughs> in 5 or 10 years having another flood i mean what's you know what is it is that a good investment is that a bad investment i mean how how will this work
10: yeah the the, the green meg i think can help in two ways one i think we're seeing the effects of climate change in that weather events are becoming more and more disastrous more and more frequent and more and more unpredictable and so just in terms of yeah we need to do something we need to do something as a as a state as a country and as a world having people be able to tap into these funds and, and get these projects that maybe have been a bit sluggish to get moving. Like I can think specifically Wakona High School out in Dalton uh, wanted to go net zero when they built the new building and they couldn't because it was just unaffordable to the town. This could have made a difference. And every building, every entity, every every house that we can do like that is going to have an impact that, that hopefully over time will mitigate seeing disasters like this happen so, so, so uh, frequently. Now, with that being said, as people rebuild, as people rebuild even in a way that maybe looks more resilient. I, I, the town hall we were just at in Waitley, people were talking about this municipal vulnerability preparedness program. Making sure funding gets to that and making sure people are realizing that the way things worked and the way things looked 100 years ago, even in terms of how the river rises, how storms hit us, isn't the same, and that we have to be prepared for how things have changed and how they might change. This is where any funding we get, whether it's through a green bank or whether it's through state assistance that we hope is going to come, and the governor, the commissioner of agriculture, lieutenant governor, uh, the new world affairs director have all been out here viewing the damage firsthand, which I think is amazing, and we're already in the legislature starting to work on how do we get that funding, how do we get funding directly out here, and how do we make sure that as even farmers are preparing for can they rebuild? Can they regrow? Will they be back up up and running later this year or, or next year? How they also plan for mitigating in the future. Uh,
3: I think, Senator Paul, Dan, your question is a really great question. And what is so frustrating for so many people who are aware of uh, what carbon is doing to us and what greenhouse emissions are doing to us. But we have the technology to ret- retrofit buildings now in a way that can produce Net zero, as you're referring to them, um, results or decarbonized building projects for individual homes, for schools, for municipal buildings like the town hall in Waitley. I think it's just um, a matter of priorities, right?
10: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and priorities are often set by finances, unfortunately. When you have a town like town like Waitley, I don't want to pick on Waitley, but uh, or or the towns in that central Berkshire. Uh, school districts eight really small dalton and seven really small towns and when they're looking at what's our property tax bill as we're trying to decide do we invest in a new high school they made that decision yeah we're going to invest in the new high school now what's our property tax bill with this form of heating versus that form of heating and unfortunately you know that was that was a priority i think was important to the people but that they didn't think they could afford and so making sure that taking that money element out of prioritization is only going to help more organizations more individuals and more communities make the decision that they want to make which is where we want everyone to get to
3: well speaking of your district
10: um, your mm-hmm.
3: enormous district um, the new there's a new there's a rural affairs uh, rural policy advisory commission um, and the rural affairs director and Gobi um, I, is working I think very actively, to figure out what this, to assess the needs of of our region and to how to meet them the senate president i think has anointed you to actually serve on the commission as a representative of the senate did i get that right
10: yeah yeah so so the senate president appointed me as the senate president's designee to the rural policy advisory commission and what's cool about that is i'm going to be the first senator that has been appointed by the senate to that position. And so I had held that position as the House Speaker's designee uh, for, for a few years. Uh, I was only the second House member to ever hold that position. And I was always frustrated by the fact that I would hear good ideas. I would hear good ideas for policy. I would hear, hear good ideas for budgeting from the group. And then I wouldn't have a senator that was there, you know, living it with me, seeing it firsthand with me. And so it, it made some of the things we were fighting for a little bit more difficult to get across the finish line. And so our, our local rep, Natalie Blay, your, your local rep in Ashfield, she was just appointed to be my successor as the House designee. And now with me going in from the Senate side, we're going to have a really good Western mass focus, a really good rural focus, and hopefully the ability to like tag team these things and, and, and work closely. It's not the official board of directors for the new rural affairs position, but it's like a advisory board that i think angobi is going to put a lot of stock in a lot of well let's
3: let's talk about that what is the rural policy advisory commission what is its mission
10: and how does it accomplish it its its mission is to bring together rural communities from all over our state because in the end while we we feel neglected and forgotten in western massachusetts we're actually not the only area that feels that and out of the 351 cities and towns in the state 181 of them qualify as rural so geography wise and municipal area wise we actually are the majority of the state. It's just the population. Seventy-five percent of it is in in, in those those uh, non-rural communities, and and we got the other twenty-five percent. But so we 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 have this forum to meet together, to advocate together, to share what works, to share what doesn't work, and to develop common areas of advocacy that then extend to our rural caucus in the legislature, and now with this rural affairs director will extend directly into the governor's office. I mean, she's she's in the executive branch. Uh, I want to say she's cabinet level or, or, or close, closely there, too. And so every time the governor now is going to make a decision on how do we implement a piece of legislation, how do we propose a piece of legislation, how do we implement and propose regulations, we hope that Angobi is going to be there giving that rural perspective. We try to do it every time we can in the legislature. We try to tailor bills, to make sure that the small town feel uh, unintended consequences for for small towns aren't forgotten, aren't ignored. And now having that direct pipeline into the governor, I think, is only going to help.
1: Senator Mark, I'd appreciate your going back to the recent devastation in the region and how that's going to play out long term. I appreciate all your forward looking prognostications. But what about the floods? What's what are they going to do to us?
10: Yeah. So, the, so the, the good news is, what I've seen so far is nothing that money can't fix. And so, making sure that we get that money and that we get that funding is going to be the most important. I've seen uh, roads devastated. I've seen houses devastated and buildings flooded. Uh, I've seen these farm crops that, in in some instances, they're in they're in pretty bad shape and they're they're not sure what the future is going to look like. So, getting them the assistance they need, getting them the funding they need, and I we've already been like sort of directly working on it. Uh, The legislature, the House side, uh, considered a bill. There was proposals. It was a little too quick to getting those proposals through, but it looks like the Senate is going to get a shot at it in the next couple of weeks. And hopefully by then we'll have some more concrete numbers. There's talk of some kind of a farm sustainability uh, rescue plan coming through. uh, And and then the infrastructure needs, we think the state is going to meet the minimum threshold that is going to qualify for the uh, emergency disaster relief. And then figuring out how to supplement that as needed. Um, people people are going to need help. I applaud that the governor was out here. She looked at it directly. The lieutenant governor has been out here to see it directly. The commissioner of agriculture, the rural director, people are taking it seriously. And I'll say here, we, we are lucky that we aren't seeing what is happening in Vermont here. We aren't hit as bad as we were with Hurricane Irene, but we're going to need help and we're going to get through it.
3: No, know, a lot of people are particularly focused on farms—the agricultural impact yeah. of these uh, deluges. We just keep suffering, and the long-term impact on our soil. Um, but in your your 57 community district, um, how many how many farms do you know of that are suffering the kind of devastation that we're seeing? Some of our local farms suffer.
10: Yeah, the the worst I've seen in my district has been in Conway and in Williamsburg. And then out of the district, the Connecticut River Valley is where we're seeing a lot. So I've been seeing on on Facebook and hearing from uh, my counterparts, like Deerfield got hit pretty bad, Hatfield got hit pretty bad. I think East Hampton and potentially even Holyoke got hit pretty bad. So the Ag Commissioner has, I think, visited every farm that has reached out so far and is trying to get to the rest as well. And, yeah, trying to explain it to one of my colleagues in Boston yesterday, I had to say, think about a factory that burnt down. And so a factory burnt down, all their product for the year is gone, but also now next season they don't know that they're going to be up and running again. So it, it, it's not just replacing what was lost right now. It's will this be ready to go into the winter season or into the next next spring season, or is this going to be a, a longer-term thing, and then how do we how do we help them rebuild? And I, I think that kind of helped them understand a bit, but I we'll, we'll find out.
3: It, it's. I guess my question. I'm kind of embarrassed to ask it because uh, it's kind of a dumb question. But how do you outreach in such a broad district uh, geographically um, and find out who's suffering particularly and yeah. and uh, where your attention should be focused?
10: It, it, it's a lot of coordination. We've coordinated directly with MEMA, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency. MDAR, the Department of Agriculture, has been reaching out directly by phone calls and emails and by making these site visits. And then the city and town officials have been in touch. We've been coordinating with uh, directly with the other legislators. Some legislators are sending out direct emails to get uh, a feel from, from individuals and from organizations, you know, what, what's happening. And then trying to see as much of it, firsthand as possible and then spreading the word like i had the opportunity to talk to wbz the other day and, and, and to talk to um new stations that came out from boston and, and and joined us in williamsburg and joined us in north adams and just getting that word out uh, around the state i think is important but yeah in in terms of like directly accessing constituents it's not feasible for me to just knock on everyone's door that looks like there's damage we we coordinate very closely with all these other entities which which is really helpful
3: State Senator Paul Mark of the Berkshire, Hampshire, Franklin, and Hamden District. Uh, before we um, leave, I, I want to find out, Ann Goby is the newly minted Director of Rural Affairs. She's a long time, like you, Representative and Senator uh, in our legislature. And um, she, uh, uh, what role will she play as a Director of Rural Affairs? What role will your uh, commission play when something like these floods happens? Is is that yeah principally within the purview of the commission and her?
10: It, not the commission, but with her, she's pioneering this role. And so she did come to Conway yesterday with the lieutenant governor to see firsthand. And so I, I, I think where she's going to have the ability to be instrumental is more coordination with cities and towns and then letting them directly know what grants might become available, what funding assistance. If we in a legislature, let's just, I'm, I'm making up numbers. If we get a $20 million farm relief package passed by the end of this month and signed and, and it's, it becomes available, let's say September 1st, and GOBI in the rural communities can do the outreach specifically to the cities and towns, to the local farm bureau even, to farm organizations uh, or to Farmers She Met, and she can help steer that implementation. Like we, we make the law. And then a big problem is often how does it get implemented? And and where I'm hopeful that she's going to have an impact is with that.
3: And before we break, I just want to remind listeners, if you go to WHMP, put WHMP into your browser, you're going to see Western Mass Farms Need Our Help. And there are hot links right there to uh, GoFundMe sites, including the Natural Roots site in Conway, that farm which was devastated by these floods. And you, too, can help be part of this solution where the damage has been done. Senator Paul Mark, we're always so grateful. Thank you so much for joining us today.
10: Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. We'll be right back. After we
4: had a few minutes, he said, did you get a bite yet, Daddy? I said, I think I got a nibble, sir. Me too.
0: This is Talk The Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. <laughs> Emotions and experiences play an important role in our financial decision-making. Every Saturday morning, hear real-life stories and positive solutions to issues we all face when it comes to our relationship with money. Financial fitness with The Money Doctor, Francis Rayem Saturday mornings at 8.30 on 101.5. 1400 WHMP.
16: At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986.
8: Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400.
15: WHMP news, information, and the arts and messages from community nonprofits.
13: What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New
1: England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad.
14: River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome.
0: You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP.
1: This week should not go by without us talking to Dan Torres, who is from Brazil, as to how that country has prevented a corrupt former president from running again. Dan, tell us how.
18: Uh, Yes, so... um, uh a week or so ago, the Brazil has an electoral court, um, and uh, five members uh, decided that uh, Bolsonaro essentially violated election laws and uh, took away his rights for eight years uh, to be a politician in the country. They've sort of stripped him of, of being... Um, to having the right to run for election, it's a democracy, and uh, Brazil is since a, since a big democracy. It's a big democracy, not that far from here. Um, it's been a democracy since eighty nine. There's two hundred twenty million people, and Trump and uh, Bolsonaro are in many ways a family, uh, very much I think uh, connected ideology, uh, ideologically, um, far right kind of uh, mentality, and essentially what the court ruled. Uh, In Brazil is that on July 18th of last year, Bolsonaro met with foreign diplomats and said to him, uh, the election here in Brazil, which they had a few months later, was going to be rigged against him. He had been saying it previously to the media, but that was what the court determined in a five to two vote. By the way, uh, since you're both lawyers, the two votes in favor of Bolsonaro said, hey, he has a free speech rights. And so free speech is is okay. The other five court says, yeah, but if you're going to lie and say things without evidence, we'll use it against you and defend the democracy that exists. So,
1: is there a lesson here for the United States
18: or not? I don't think so because I think in the United States, most of the courts. Uh, have ruled that it's free speech. People are allowed to say what they want. And so I I think there's no court ever that would ever tell Trump or anybody else who says this election is rigged that you can't run for an office. Except that Trump could have been prevented from running for office
1: if the Senate had convicted convicted him of the impeachment, and that would have been the penalty. So the United States actually has a process for doing
18: this. You're talking about January 6th. And and by the way, all of this is connected uh, to uh, an attack that happened on January 8th in Brazil of this year, when supporters of Bolsonaro uh, decided to attack... Um, the essentially the Brazilian Congress, the Brazilian presidency office and things like that. Um, it was a week after uh, the new president's uh, inauguration, who is an enemy of Bolsonaro, uh, center-left So
3: president. much to talk about, so little time, unfortunately. Yeah. But uh, listeners, thank you so much for joining us, not just today, but this week on Talk to Talk. Remember, continue to walk the walk.
5: I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9:30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life. Their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files.
7: My name is Silas Cuff, I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org.
0: WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2.